Valentine's Day, 1551. A light snow was falling in Feversham, a town 75 miles from London. Thomas Arden comes home from a neighbor's house to have dinner with his wife, Alice. It's around seven o'clock at night, and he's sitting in the parlor of his beautiful home, the former guest house of Feversham Abbey. He's spent his life climbing the ladder of class and wealth, and now he should be content. He's got a beautiful house and a beautiful wife, hundreds of acres of land, an important position as commissioner of the customs of the port of Feversham, and the friendship of the most powerful man in the county. But what he doesn't know is that he only has minutes to live. This is A Killing in Kent, a podcast on the fascinating life and confounding death of Thomas Arden of Feversham. comely personage has no idea about the murderous plot laid by his wife Alice, young, tall, and well-favored of shape and countenance. She was inflamed in love with a man named Mosby, who was the steward in her stepfather's home. But why didn't Alice just divorce Harden? After all, it was because of the issue of divorce that King Henry VIII created the Church of England. Well, actually, his marriages with three of his wives ended in annulment, meaning the marriage never actually took place. But what about someone else trapped in an unhappy marriage, like Alice? She wouldn't have been able to provide any evidence that she was forced into marrying, or that she and Arden were too closely related by blood, so their marriage couldn't have been completely dissolved. But what about a legal separation? According to the book... Marriage, Separation, and Divorce in England, 1500 to 1700s, authors Krista Kesselring and Tim Stretton explain that there was no such thing as a divorce as we now know it. Quote, Not a divorce that ended in one union and permitted the parties to live wholly free or to bind themselves anew. People might simply walk away from a marriage, of course, but remained liable to court action to honor the financial and other obligations of wedlock. If they remarried, they risked not only social abroprium and threats of hellfire, but also prosecution for the offenses of adultery or bigamy. Hmm, that doesn't sound good. I suppose that helps to answer why Alice and Mosby decided to end her marriage in a more permanent way. But they weren't dumb. They knew they didn't want to get caught, which rules out just killing him in his sleep because just like now, Alice would be the number one suspect. Alice and Mosby developed many murder plots to take Arden out, but time and time again, things got in the way. Call it good luck for Arden, but bad luck for Alice and her co-conspirators. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the first three conspirators and why they agreed to help Alice kill her husband. The first person on board with killing Arden other than Mosby, was a servant in the Arden house named Michael. 
There's no evidence that Michael was treated badly or paid unfairly. But Alice could offer Michael something he wanted very badly. Love. Alice's maid servant was Mosby's sister, and also the apple of Michael's eye. In the play and song, this woman is called Susan, but in real life her name was Cecily Pounder, which indicates she was married before and is a widow. It wasn't just a matter of putting in a good word for Michael. Whoever would marry Susan needed the permission of the man of the family, who was, in this case, Mosby. So, Michael agrees to do anything in his power to help with whatever plan there is to kill Arden. In exchange, he gets Mosby's permission to marry Susan. Michael's not the only person who's crazy in love with Susan, though. A painter named Clark is also in love and willing to do anything he needs to get Mosby's permission to marry her. And what Mosby asks is Clark's help in murdering Arden. Specifically, Mosby asks Clark, a painter, for a special paint job. Mosby's heard that Clark can make a painting that has poison embedded in the paint so that whoever looks on it will die. Mosby asks Clark if he could paint a poison portrait of Alice for Arden. Now, in case you're wondering, how can Clark paint something that will kill someone who looks on it without dying himself as he paints it? He explains in the play that he puts his eyeglasses on really tight close to his eyes and puts rhubarb leaves up his nose so he can't smell anything. But maybe you're wondering how it is that the poison in the paint can kill someone who just looks at it. I wish I could answer you. Now, if it were breathing in the poison over a long period of time, it would be more believable. I mean, there are reputable historians who believe that that's how Napoleon died, as a result of breathing in poison that leached out of the green pigment in his wallpaper. But that would have been over a long period of time, not just looking at it once. And anyway, the type of pigment that caused that, Sheely's green, hadn't even been invented in 1550. That isn't to say that there aren't plenty of paint colors in Arden's time that were based in poison. In her article, Hidden Poisons of the Royal Court, best-selling author Eleanor Herman explains that not only was lead a common addition to paint, lots of paint colors were created with poison. For example, red paint was often made from mercury, and yellow was made from arsenic sulfide. But back to Clark. Alice, turns out, isn't crazy about the poison painting idea and asks Clark if he has any undetectable poison that could be added to Arden's food, which he does. In the Hollandshed version of the story, Clark specifically tells Alice to put the poison at the bottom of a porringer and then add milk to it. Arden's supposed to be leaving Feversham to go to Canterbury for a while, but before he leaves, he's going to eat breakfast at home. Alice stirs some of Clark's poison into Arden's breakfast porridge, but evidently she was not the world's greatest cook because, you guessed it, she puts the milk in first and then the poison. Arden notices that after a few bites, it tastes funny. He feels sick, but he hasn't had enough to kill him. In the play, Alice is smart enough to throw the poisoned food to the ground so no one can check and figure out what she's done. Arden is suffering, but he doesn't have a clue that Alice is trying to kill him. So off he goes to Canterbury on the world's worst horse ride with 
as Hollinshed explains, extreme purging upwards and downwards. Very vivid imagery. In the play, Mosby gives Clark a second chance at helping them out and asks him to paint them a poisoned crucifix. Eventually, Clark finishes it and gives it to Alice, but as it turns out, they don't need it because at that point, they have trained professionals on the job. Maybe Alice and Mosby would have bumbled along like this forever, trying schemes that didn't pan out, but along comes the third conspirator, Green. Green is a neighbor of the Ardens, who had, in years past, leased some of the Abbey land. Now Arden owns all of that land, and people like Green, who previously leased it, have no way to make a living. Green wants his land back, and he's angry at how greedy Arden is. He comes to Arden and Alice's house to try to work something out, but Arden's gone to London, so Alice talks to him. Alice listens sympathetically as Green tells her about Arden taking his land. She explained that she can't really do anything because Arden's contract on the land is for as long as he is alive. That's her first hint. Then she tells Green that she and Arden don't have a happy marriage. They seem fine in public, but no one knows the truth. She tells him that every time Arden goes to London for business, he pays for female companionship. Then when he comes home, he hits her and causes her so much trouble that she wishes one of them were dead. Green is indignant that Arden would be abusive to someone as good as Alice, and someone who comes from such a good family. It doesn't take much to get him to promise that if Arden doesn't let him have his land back, he'll take care of Arden himself. Alice doesn't think that's a great idea, maybe because she doesn't think Green can pull it off. Instead, she suggests that Green hire some baddies who specialize in killing, and tells him to do it while Arden is in London. She gives Green some money to give the bad guys as a down payment. Ten crowns when they take the job, twenty more when they finish it. Makes you wonder what hired murderers are worth back then. Is Alice overpaying? According to Project Britain, one crown back then is worth five shillings. Alice is offering ten crowns just to take the job, which is fifty shillings. According to the currency converter at the British National Archives, 10 shillings in 1550s England is worth 16 days' wages. So 50 shillings is worth 80 days' wages. Another 20 crowns once Arden is dead? That's close to 160 additional days. 240 days' wages total for killing Arden? That certainly makes it worth some bad guy's while. All it takes now is for Green to find someone suitable for the job. And in the next episode, we're going to find out just who that will be. Thank you for listening to A Killing in Kent, the fascinating life and confounding death of Thomas Arden of Feversham. I'm your host, Diane Rayo Harmon. This show is produced by Jeff Harmon, with theme music by Harold Bryce Harmon.